is the city of David in all of its glory. It's pretty amazing because like uh, when I went last summer, the leader of our trip, Monty Cox, he take he like he goes pretty like semi-frequently compared to the rest of us to Israel. He takes a trip every few years with the big group. And we were at we had just come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, which is one of the great experiences in in Jerusalem. And we came out to um oh I'm remember, forgetting the name of the pool. Siloam. Siloam, yeah. And they are, and he was, and he hadn't been there, I think, in two or three years. And he was looking at the pool of Siloam, and he was like, "Oh my goodness, they've they've like uncovered a lot more of this since I was last here, and it's a really big pool." So, the, it's just an ongoing work, and they just keep digging down and down. And so, there's always more discoveries like this. So, if you went last summer or or last or this spring, and then you go back in two or three years you'll probably see some more stuff in the places you were that you didn't see the time before. So, anyway, it's, it's a unique place for that alone. Uh, well, we've got... Hey, here we go. Okay. Um, let's stand and do the Shema and to rededicate our hearts to God this morning as we learn from His Word. Let's say this together and then we'll jump in. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Alright. Um, you can be seated. Okay, so kind of the way we've got three more classes left. Kind of the way it's going to work is we will, in a sense, look at the path that Jesus took in the final week or weeks of His life towards the cross. I don't know that we'll get all the way to the cross and past that, but we'll, we'll get pretty close. And so I've got today and then next week, and then Becky's closing us out for the grand finale. Okay, so in Luke... In Luke chapter 9, there's a verse that says, you know, Jesus set his sights on going towards Jerusalem. Knowing, he knew where he was going, and he set his sights there, and he went, and he went that way. And then there's some key points along the way that he hits. Uh, we looked at, a couple weeks ago, Samaria. When the village rejects him, and remember some of the disciples wanted to call fire down from heaven. Um, so we looked at that for a minute. And then Samaria and Galilee, he heals ten lepers. And then he's in Jericho with Zacchaeus, which we looked at that. And then um, towards Bethphage and Bethany with the triumphal entry in Luke chapter 19. Um, so a lot of where we're going to be is focused in this area, Jerusalem, Bethany, Bethlehem is right here. You can see that Bethlehem is not far from the city of Jerusalem. This is what it looks like a little bit closer. I don't know if this, you know, this may not be the exact right uh, pathway, but it's something pretty close that Jesus took on the way towards Jerusalem for his, um, his own death. So there's, we'll, we'll come back to that map a couple of times so that we can 
kind of remember where we're going. Some of this stuff, I think it's kind of data driven. I get, I get that. But I think also whatever we can learn about Jesus, even if it's just some information, it helps us get to know Him a little bit more. It's worth the effort, I think. It's worth the time. Whatever it takes to get to know Jesus a little bit more, it's, it's, worth, it's worth the effort and we can understand His story a little bit better. Some more background. We've done this before, if you've been here, but as a reminder, the Sadducees are the priesthood. They are different than the Pharisees. From a high level, the way to think, think about it is the Pharisees are mostly really good people. You would want to be a Pharisee. You look up to them in high regard if you're a devoted Jew. Because they love the Bible. They love the Scripture. They wanted, um, they wanted a revival among the people based on increased devotion to following God in the Bible, in the Word. So the Pharisees, mostly good people, the minority of them were hypocrites. And Jesus, when He talks about the hypocrites among them, He's talking about the minority of the Pharisees, not the Pharisees as a whole. Now, I say that to draw contrast to the Sadducees, who were mostly not good people. They were the priesthood, and um, they controlled the temple in Jerusalem. They took the Torah literally, so the first five books, they took it literally, word for word, and they didn't see the rest of Scripture as authoritative. Even the rest of the Old Testament, not, not authoritative to them. They were focused on the Torah and following that word for word. They also did not believe in angels or in the resurrection. Now, to give you some Scripture context for that very briefly, on angels. If you remember in Luke, we've talked about this, John the Baptist's father was Zechariah. It says in there that he was a righteous priest. Again, seems redundant, but you've got to actually draw that line because the Sadducees mostly were not righteous. John the Baptist's dad is a righteous priest. And do you remember who comes to visit him? It's an angel. And if you look at the beginning of Luke, angels are a recur I mean, they appear a handful of times. So, the Sadducees, in general, the priests did not believe in angels. They were overly focused on purity and being clean versus unclean. Um, again, that's not a bad thing on its own, but they kind of took it to an extreme length, to an extreme place where certain people were excluded from being involved with God. Um, we're going to look at some of that today. We'll look at more of that next week. This, this, that the Sadducees tried to push out people from having an intimate experience with God. So, again, they hoarded money. Josephus talks about this. The Sadducees hoarded money for themselves. And they wanted to keep the poor and the broken, the sinners, the unclean, out of the house of God so that they could retain their position of power and influence and wealth. Jesus comes up right against this power and influence in His own life. Lastly, they were very rich. They worked arm-in-arm, hand-in-hand with Herod and the, and the Roman rulers over the land. 
Okay, so I think that's some important background as we get into these stories here. An example, uh, the story that we call the widow's mite. So at the beginning of Luke chapter 21, Jesus looks up. He sees the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people have given their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. An amazing thing that Jesus highlights the broken and the poor here. And he uses her as an example for the rest of us. And it's, it might be kind of a quick shortcut to say that Jesus is taking a shot at wealth and the wealthy and you shouldn't have this much money. Now that's a shortcut you can take, but I don't know that that's what's going on here. You remember, this is the beginning of Luke chapter 21 and Luke didn't start chapter 21. You know, people came along after that to draw these organized chapters and verses for us way after it was written. This makes a lot more sense if you look up in the column in your Bible or scroll to the next page on your phone. At the end of Luke chapter 20, Jesus says, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in long robes, love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces, and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These surely will be punished most severely. So, when Jesus is talking about how this widow is a hero for giving the last piece of wealth that she has to God in the temple. He's saying she's poor because you Sadducees are not doing your job taking care of her. In fact, you're doing the opposite. You're taking all the money that you can from her. You're abusing her. And she's still giving all that she has to God. So it's a pretty amazing thing when you back up because I, for a long time, never noticed this context to the story of the widow giving her last piece of wealth. Is that the Sadducees have taken all that she has and she is still giving the rest that she has. So again, an example of this is really Jesus points out this widow to say, in, at least in one sense, the Sadducees, these are not the kind of people that, that we aspire to be. Yeah. So the teachers of the law were not the Pharisees; they were using the Sadducees. It's kind of a it's kind of a mix, I would say. Some some were Pharisees, because he points out again and again at the Pharisees, don't try to take the top spot, you know. So, I think I think it's a mix of uh, Sadducees and Pharisees there, in teachers of the law, that you see throughout the the Gospels, is my take. But there's maybe some different views there. And the Sadducees were the came from the Levite. Correct. Uh, but were they? How did, did they get elected to be? Do you know? I mean, because there weren't that many, were there? The Sadducees. There were there were a good bit, but there were less Sadducees than Pharisees. And Pharisees really, to be a Pharisee was kind of a part-time gig. Most of those guys had full-time jobs. 
and then they were totally, they were very devoted to studying the scripture also and were looked upon as leaders among the people is kind of how I think about the Pharisees whereas the Sadducees as the priests in the temple ruled over the people. Does that make sense kind of? Yeah. I just wonder how they got to power. Was, would they just yeah they so just clear, uh, they worked with Herod and Herod you know built the temple this massive temple which was way bigger than what Solomon built we're gonna kinda look at that a minute next week and I think you know and Herod used them and they used Herod to keep their position over the people and stay wealthy and stay powerful in the political side of things too yeah To, uh, to look at this a little more in context, again, from the Sadducees' own, own book in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Um, the subtitle in, in my Bible was The Essence of the Torah. And this is what it says in, somewhere in Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And again, the Torah, it, it's amazing to look at the Torah in light of Egypt because so many, and it's really not different today, but there is a hierarchy of power and wealth and then scale down. But the Torah, God's trying to say, take care of those on the bottom end of the spectrum. The fatherless, the poor, the widows, the orphans. Take care of them. And so through the Torah, God's trying to set up a society that's very different than what the world naturally moves towards. Um, and you see Jesus, I think, calling, calling the Sadducees back to this right, this right here. <coughs> All right, let's look at another thing um, on, the, on the path towards Jerusalem. So Jesus passes through a small town called Bethany. Um, we can flip back up here. So Bethany there in context towards Jerusalem. <coughs> Bethany means the house of misery or the house of the poor. Um, in my house right now, my roommate... He just got um, ACL surgery on Thursday, and his dad's here, like helping take care of him. We, you know, we're in the house of misery right now, where I live. Um, I've also said had some house issues with leaks and stuff. So yeah, this is this is very true for me right now. But Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live here in Bethany, and some scholars believe it being the house of misery. Some scholars believe it might have been a leper colony. Which raises some interesting questions about who Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were. If they were there as lepers, if they were there taking care of lepers. You know, it raises interesting thoughts. But Jesus passes through this town on the way towards the cross. And it's interesting that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the High Priest took time to be in a place surrounded by those who were outcast and hurting and unclean. The Sadducees would not be found 
in Bethany. Okay, so Lazarus, as we know the story, Lazarus dies. And Jesus waits a few days before he goes there. And he's already good friends with these, this crew. And maybe, maybe best friends with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So he waits a few days, and then he finally goes. Now, there's a fascinating context here that it, it makes this story really come to light. So when someone dies, they put them in the tomb, and they roll the stone over the tomb, but they don't seal the stone. And then they wait three days. And I've, I, I don't quite understand all of this, but I have heard that some doctors think it's actually not crazy to do this, but they will check again to see if the person is alive. So they'll wait three days. And on the third day, they'll roll back the stone. And in this case, what would have happened on the third day is they would have rolled back the stone and someone would have leaned into the little cave that Lazarus is buried in. And they would have said, Lazarus! 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 Wait a minute or two. He doesn't come out. And he's officially dead. So they roll the stone, roll the stone over and seal it. Okay, so Jesus comes on the fourth day. He comes on the fourth day. He weeps. You know, he has this intimate, deep, hard conversation with Mary and Martha about, you know, the resurrection is coming. And they're saying, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And he's saying, yeah, you're right. Like, this wouldn't have happened if I was here. You're right. And then he comes to the tomb. You know, he, has to, he weeps. And then he tells them, hey, roll away the stone. And they're thinking, what? Why, we did this yesterday. Why, why would we do this again? So they roll away the stone. And Jesus yells, Lazarus! 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 Come out! Well, you know, and everybody's thinking, again, we, we already did this and nothing happened. And of course, on the fourth day, after he's officially dead, Lazarus does come out. It's, I mean, if you don't... So, it's, it's pretty awesome to know that he does wait to the fourth day. Why is that detail in there? Well... There's, there's important context there. So, the, the resurrection is a key pillar, or no resurrection, I should say, is a key pillar to the Sadducee way of life. And Jesus, in this story, in two different ways, is undoing, you know, he's taking the foundations out from these guys' philosophy and their abuse of their place of power. So Jesus, if you remember too, um, in John it talks about that the Sadducees, and maybe some of the Pharisees too, wanted to kill Lazarus again. You know, he's, he's died, Jesus brings him back, and they're like, oh no, this is not good for us, it makes us look bad, it makes us look stupid, our whole theology is about to be proven wrong, or has been proven wrong, we need to kill Lazarus. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I mean, Jesus would have been like, really? Like, I'll just call him back out again. You know? Um, okay, moving on, unless there's a thought or question there. We can pause for just a second.
Okay. Um, something, some other helpful context to these last week or so of Jesus' life is the Passover, the whole meal, everything that's set up. A lot of this is in Exodus chapter 12. The, the gospel writers really try to set up Jesus' life as, you know, with this context that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So, on the Passover, the lamb is selected on the tenth day of the first month, on Sunday. And then, you know, they take the, they take the lamb home. You know, it's a, the children become attached to it. You name the lamb or whatever. And then the lamb is killed and eaten on the fourteenth day of the first month or on Thursday. Now in this in this time the Passover can only be celebrated in Jerusalem. And Josephus says that there were 250,000 lambs killed in Jerusalem on the Passover around this time. Now even if it's vaguely right the point is the town is totally mobbed with people at the time that Jesus gets there super crowded and so there there's a lot of there's a lot of slaughter going on around this time and so this is the time when Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the last week of his life again here's the map going through Bethany and what we're about to see is going through Bethphage so in Luke chapter 19 uh, it talks about how he approaches this town, or these kind of two little towns close to each other, Bethany, Bethphage. And he tells a couple of his disciples, go, go get a colt, and I will come into the town on this colt. On Lamb Selection Day, Sunday the 10th. Bethphage means, uh, in Hebrew it's eruf, or boundary, this is the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem. And there's a lot of context here, but coming in through the east, there's some significance coming in through the east and not another cardinal direction. Now, again, he comes in on the colt. Remember, people wave palm branches and they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They recognize... They know the scripture well enough to immediately think of Zechariah 9, which at least Matthew points out, maybe a couple of the other Gospels point out too. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus the King comes into Jerusalem from just outside of the town. He gets on the donkey at Bethphage, crosses the border into the town of Jerusalem on the donkey to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9. Okay, so Jesus is this, this King. Now, there's something fascinating here. Mark and Luke and John, it makes sense that they would say there's there he comes in on a donkey now if you've looked close you would have noticed that in Matthew 21 it's a little bit different Jesus says you will find a donkey tied there with her colt so they get the donkey and the colt and they bring it back and Jesus 
they put Jesus on both of them. So, you know, if you're trying to picture this, you're like, is he like, you know, surfing on the two? How is this working? How is he coming into town with two of them? They, he sets it, he, they set Jesus on both. Now there's two possibilities here. Matthew, maybe pointing us to Genesis chapter 49, when they're talking about Judah, the prophecy of Judah, which Jesus comes from the line of Judah. And it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, and his robes in the blood of grapes. So in Genesis 49, you've got some pointing or allusion towards that Jesus is this sacrificial lamb. On Lamb Selection Day, Jesus is our Passover Lamb. There's another possibility too, which can work. It's not. It doesn't mean. It doesn't mean the first bullet point is wrong. It might work alongside this. But there's a rabbinic teaching technique or principle um, where there's two characters, or there's a hidden character in the story. And the hidden character, or the extra character, is you. Now, if you look in Matthew, there's a couple things that are different than others. And you've got to look close, but it's there. For instance, in the other Gospels where it mentions the man who had the legion of demons. You remember the story? He had a legion of demons. Jesus takes the demons out into the pigs, and then they go into the water. If you look in Matthew, there's two of them. There's another story where, I mean, this happens a handful of times, but Jesus, you know, heals a blind man, gives him his sight back. But in Matthew, in one of those stories, there's two of them, not just one. And here, there's a donkey and a colt, not just one. The idea of the hidden character is that you are the hidden character. You, this, you also had a legion of demons, and Jesus took them out of you. And you also were blind, and Jesus gave you your sight back. Now, the question here is, this is the path that Jesus took to Him becoming King. Is the humble path of taking the donkey to the cross to die to Himself. Will you also get on the donkey and go with him. That's the challenge or the rabbinic principle acting in this story that there's a hidden character. Will you take your place? Will you join? Not just do you understand it, but will you join? So, remember, he's coming into town. They shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. And there's a lot of context here associated with the zealots, another key group of people uh, during the time of Jesus who were not only associated with total devotion to God and the Scripture, but also violence. And that violence against Rome was okay. This, actually, this Hosanna, Hosanna implies taking taking over by force. That Jesus is this powerful king that will come with force 
and with his armies and destroy the powers of Rome. And Jesus, remember, he weeps over this. And why is he weeping? It's because they don't understand what it means for Jesus to be king. And that he comes in the way of peace. And not only that, but in the way of death. So that there is life for everyone. Instead of violently overtaking things, Jesus does the opposite. So he weeps over the people not getting this picture. Now, the question is, Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Passover week, on Lamb Selection Day. And he's saying, pick me, pick me. But they don't understand what it means to pick him. Self-sacrifice being the way of life. So the question is, will we pick Jesus as our Passover lamb? And will we go with him also to take up our own cross, if you will, in our own life? And then I think lastly, um, the lesson of Jesus spending time in Bethany with the outcasts, with the lepers, with those who are excluded. Will we spend time in our own life with the unclean and the outcast and the hurting. Uh, I think that I think that about does it. That does it. Okay. So, what what does this make you think of? What are, you know? What are your thoughts or questions? Any any anything you want to toss out? Yeah. A major historian. He wrote, I mean, a, a big book. And he, he was a Jew. He was captured by Rome and kind of to save his own life. He said, I know all this stuff. I can write down this history for you. And, and he did. And so it's still around. And yeah, so a big historian. Yeah. What else? What? <laughs> How'd you learn? I mean, you've spent a lot of time studying this history of Jews and Sadducees and Pharisees. Yeah, learning myself and other good teachers and yeah, so. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Part okay. Partly is the West was the sea. Uh, the, you know, the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. Water for Jews is considered, they associate it with chaos. So even the, fisher, like even the fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, they would have associated the Sea of Galilee with chaos. Some of that coming from the very beginning of the Bible, right? That the world was covered in water and the Spirit hovered over this state of chaos. That's part of it. Um, and then, so, this, there's a handful of verses, and I can't recall them off the top of my head, about coming in from the east. But I'll look into that more, and I'll hit it next week. That's a little more closely. One image that you were talking about, and if you can picture this, when Jesus got on the coast, coming into the city, the road is extremely... Mm-hmm. And so this was not a smooth ride coming down. It's just like holding on for your life. And, and, and 
at the same time people are shouting Hosanna, Hosanna. And it's real irony in that picture, in that story. And if you can visualize the road coming down. And it's the same road <coughs> that Jesus would have used. It hasn't changed, but it's extremely steep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And crowds, I mean, I, it, the other thing I've heard is that at that time, it would have been an extremely slim, like crowded road too. So if the crowds are there waving palm branches, putting them on the ground, that, yeah, it would have, it would have been a very crowded scene right there too. Yeah. I was curious about your picture at the beginning. Mm -hmm. the city of Do you know where geographically that's located? Is that like below the temple is That might be right. Is that right? Mecca is to the east. Uh huh. Yeah. There's something very significant about the east. I'm not sure where it is. Yep. And then I have a question about. I mean, I'm fascinated. I've never heard about the three days that they would check to make sure somebody's still alive. Mm hmm. It, was that. Do you know if that was just the Jewish faith or was that. Do you know if that was. Like I don't know if it was just the Jewish faith or not. That's a good question. Or if that was just a. I, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Interesting, yes. I think even in more recent times, people were afraid of being buried alive, yeah. even to the extent of having a bell on top of the casket mm -hmm. with a string inside so that if they woke up, they could ring the bell. Yeah, huh. that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I'm curious if you've ever heard any commentary on the significance of the, the cult having never been ridden prior. I know, I have not, but that's always stood out to me, and I've not. I've not read or heard anything on, yeah, the what that means. I mean, it's got a, it's in there for a reason. I'm sure, uh, but it's not, you know, it's not accidental. But I have not heard or read anything on that. Has anybody heard or any anything on the cult having never been ridden and why that means something? That's your homework this week. <laughs> yeah. Somebody the day they died and not let, yeah, let you, them stay overnight. That's right. Well, I would. The well, they want to. Yeah, they want to bury them before sunset. Right. Essentially, it. I don't know if it was out of respect. I can't remember if it's actually in the Torah somewhere. But they do that with with Jesus. Do you remember they rush him down, kind of? Yes. Well, I mean, Jewish tradition basically says that you're, you're, you come to rejoin God um, 
doesn't happen until you're buried. And so one of the most important things is a quick and rapid burial. And the reason the pseudo-death tradition began was basically they were buried, but they weren't sealed or completely nailed down. I mean, basically, yeah, if you have the pseudo-death, if you would just woke up later, Yeah, and I'll say two things there on that that are kind of fascinating. First, think about back to the Torah. The pyramids were built as these unbelievable tombs for Pharaoh, right? Like this is where he is. He is laid here. And we highlight how big and how big of a god Pharaoh was. Now, think about Moses' death at the end of uh, Deuteronomy. It says he was, this is really fascinating, he was buried here. It points out this specific place. Moses, the leader of Israel, the spokesperson for God. Not God himself though, because he's like the rest of us. But the spokesperson for God, it points out specifically where he was buried. And then the next verse, do you remember what it says? No one knows where he's buried to this day. So it's a fascinating thing that even you don't want to make too big of a deal of the person. It's God himself and there's only one true God. The Lord alone, right? The Shema. So that's a fascinating you know, comparison, the leader of Egypt versus the leader of Israel. Secondly, Jews tr um, try to say a hundred blessings a day. Lord, I bless you for whatever. And the one of the first ones they say every morning is, Lord, I bless you uh, for restoring life to me today when they wake up. So even waking up is an opportunity to thank God for new life, that He brought resurrection to you tomorrow morning you know on Monday morning when you wake up and so that's an that's an awesome practice I think to constantly you know you bless in when you put clothes on Lord I bless you for clothing the naked and when you open your eyes Lord I bless you for giving sight back to the blind and a hundred a day it's hard to do I, I've tried to do it and I'll, I'll start decent and I'll do like six or eight of them and then as the day gets going I get busy and forget you know and that's that's how life goes, and that's something for us to learn and grow in. Um, all right, we're past the time. Thank you, and I'll see you next week.